Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Frog Jump Volleyball Podcast. My name is Ramius, and this week, Harvey and I will be answering questions submitted by you, the listeners, concerning all things D3VB. Let's get after it. All right, let's get after it. Okay, so first question we have, and I apologize, everyone. My voice is hoarse and almost gone because I was... Uh, I've been working the Marquette camps all week, and I just have no voice. That's kind of what happens at camp. So, uh, but let's get started. We have a bunch of questions here that you all submitted, and they're really good ones, and me and Harvey are going to do our best to answer them. So, first question, we're going to go with which team had the most surprising 2021? Uh, Harvey, lead us off. Um, I took this a little bit of a different direction, and I kind of took surprising into a disappointment side. And I went with Stevens Tech. Um, first full season in the MAC, ended up finishing third. Obviously, they had a big transition from Pat Orwalski to Dan Gearing. And, uh, you know, COVID, a lot of different things came into play. But Stevens Tech was a team that had been in five or six straight Final Fours, won a national championship during the last seven years. So to see them not be able to make the conference final in, uh, in the MAC was a little bit surprising. Um, so I thought they were definitely on the disappointing side, um, and I'm sure uh, I'm sure Dan's got big plans for for year two with those guys up there. You know, a little bit more normalcy, a little bit more stability with the roster, and he'll have things back in the right direction. But to see uh, to see a program of Steven stature have the year they did was uh, was definitely a disappointment in terms of the surprising side. Yeah, no, I get that completely, especially because like. When, I mean, we all kind of saw like it was a earthquake moment when Misericordia beat them, right? So what, that literally got the landscape's attention. And obviously it was a COVID year and like COVID made everyone, everything crazy, right? But like when we saw that happen and then we saw the type of uh, ball they were playing, we're like, wow, like this isn't the type of Stevens tech that we're normally used to, right? And then all of a sudden they, they and I will give Stevens tech credit. They started playing pretty quality ball at the end of the year, right? And it was just like, it was just a little, well, they just came up short, which happens. It happens to a lot of programs. We're just never used to seeing Stevens Tech being one of those programs that happens to. So I can see why you thought that was surprising. For me personally, I kind of had the same had the same idea as you, Harvey, and that it was kind of both disappointing and surprising. But I was I actually think Springfield kind of takes my top takes my choice there as like the most surprising 2021, right? And mostly it was just because like, A, uh, COVID threw everyone for a loop, obviously. And in a COVID year, you don't get to have a bad match. Obviously, X, Y, and Z, everyone had to go through a bunch of different hoops to play. Uh, Springfield, just as many, if not more, as other programs, right? And then on top of all of that, having to come up with, having to meet health guidelines, listen to regional, our regional best practices, talking with administrators, getting the okay to play was hard enough. But then on top of that, even just getting on the court, making sure that you had all your guys on the court for good, for all the matches that you need to have them on and then playing your best quality ball the entire year. And I think a lot of people don't take into account how hard, like how punishing COVID was in terms of having a bad match, right? Especially for Springfield. So like we normally, and when we look at that Springfield roster, it's just, it's full of D3 all-stars. It's also full of some of the best talent in the division, but anyone can have a bad match at any time, at any point in the season. And I, I mean, I don't think it would be shocking to say that Springfield had a bad match against Wentworth. I don't think that's a, I don't think that's very, how do I put it? I don't think that's a very controversial take because I watched that game and Springfield was up in all the sets that they eventually lost to Wentworth by like three or four points and they just couldn't close out and they just weren't playing the quality ball that they really needed to. Now, normally in a longer season, they can mitigate that bad law. They can mitigate that bad match by picking up a win here, a win here, a win here, right? But in COVID, you couldn't, especially Springfield because they only had seven games, right? So like losing one of those games was intrinsically just a death sentence for the postseason. So honestly, like, that's what uh, I think that's kind of why I had Springfield in my spot as like the most surprising 2021, uh, 2021 season. Yeah, sure. Your margin for error was just incredibly thin. And if you were to tell, uh, tell any other program in the country, they could have a disappointing season. That was a one loss season. I'm sure they would take it. <laughs> but the, uh, the standards at Springfield are just a little bit different. 
And like you said, on a, I think it ended up being a nine, an eight or nine match season for, for, for Springfield. And, okay. and the case is, you know, that's what you're dealing with. It's, uh, it's a tough break. Uh, but same, same as I mentioned for Stevens, I think, uh, I think Charlie will have that group, uh, rare and ready to go come, um, come 2022. And I would be surprised if we didn't see, uh, a few shakeups in terms of their lineup to, uh, to maybe spark. I understand, Harvey. I understand. We got a bunch of questions to talk about. They'll talk through still. All right. So in that vein, right, we just talked, we kind of capping off 2021. So let's go to 2022. One of our listeners suggested, uh, wanted to know which programs we have as the next breakout programs in 2022. Who are going to be the dark horse teams that are going to steal the show? You actually have a pretty good answer to this, Harvey. Um, yeah, so I, I took this more as a breakout and less of a dark horse, um, but I really have my eye on Mount Union. Yeah, okay. Talk to me. You can talk to me about Mount Union. Go ahead. I want to hear this one. So the Purple Raiders had a great season in 2021, and they're losing the Fop on in the, uh, in the conference final, and I think Fop on did a great job on the national stage of showing what a quality program they are. Um, so with Mount Union competing with those guys so closely, we have an idea of how good, how good they're going to be. Um, they're going into their fourth years of RC program. So their initial recruiting class, those guys are going to be seniors, um, which is, which is a great spot where you want your program to be. We've seen that with Dominican and a few other programs in the past. Um, Jeremy Layden, four year starter at the set, setting position. Um, so, you know, that's always a great spot to have. Have some experience. Um, Mark Bruns on the right side. He's a guy I'm super high on. Uh, great frame, great attacker. Thinks he's got more room to grow. And then a name I was told to keep an eye on for uh, for a 2022 breakout is Cameron Turnin. Uh, this guy has a lot of respect. He's a classic Midwest kid. All the coaches out there are telling me what a baller he is. Um, and, and all the East Coast coaches are saying, who? Um, so I was just going to say, like, I actually don't know this name. Is this an incoming dude? Yeah. Uh, no, no. So he, he's a transfer and from Indiana Tech. He played this past year as the O2. Um, he was, he was the O2 this past year. Um, and Matt Union ended up getting four guys in all conference and he didn't get on, uh, because he, he wasn't a guy who was nominated. Um, so I'm not sure Mount Union can, um, can shrink the gap all the way to be winning the MCBL, but I think they could be more competitive with Fop on. I think that we might be able to see them upset a nationally ranked team. Um, but I'm, uh, I definitely expect them to, to, to be a breakout in 22. And as far as a dark horse, um, I really like Rutgers Newark. Back in 2020, they were, they were storming. They were a top five program. Their only loss was to the, uh, Nate Miller led Lancaster Bible Chargers. They played this past season with nine guys. Uh, that was a starting lineup plus a backup libero and a backup setter. So they had no depth at all. Um, they've got a really strong incoming class, uh, a nice M2 that I outlined, uh, in Aaron LaPlaca. I think he's going to break into the starting lineup. Their, their strong freshman class is going into a third season. Those guys are going to be gelling. And uh, without, once again, diving into the weeds too much, the rumors are swirling uh, of some guys who might be coming in to potentially solidify the pins out there. So we can see Rutgers rise back to the top and, uh, and maybe be a top five Final Four contender uh, come 2022. Uh, so I got so many thoughts on this, mostly just because like, I love a Mount Union take. Cause I have, a, I really have a lot of like, literally they were a young program. I was really high on last year when I was doing the uh, landscape series and I just kind of like watching them play. Right. I mean, they've always been rather entertaining to watch play and obviously like Fonbon's kind of like King of the Hill in the MCVL, but even just shrinking the gap with Fonbon right now, I think that's going to go a long way to helping I think it's going to be a lot more shocking than people realize. And so I'll have to go and look up this kid that you're talking about here or the outside two from the uh, tech. But though, another thing that both know the rumors that are swirling about Rutgers Newark. And honestly, I would love to see some of those happen. We won't get, we won't, we won't suggest any, any names on the podcast, but we'll throw it out there. There have been a lot of super team rumors about Rutgers Newark coming in next year. Anyway. So for me personally, I kind of have my dark horse and my breakout programs are going to be the same actually so uh 
I actually am really high on MIT uh, for a couple of reasons. So in 2020, during the COVID year, uh, they actually were on a tear. And they, I think they, they were on like an X match win streak at one point in the year and in one point at the end of 2020 and they beat of the four teams of the four ranked teams they were playing at the end of 2020 they went three for four against them and the only team they lost in 2020 they lost to in 2020 in that final stretch was new pulse uh which is and that's like new pulse was arguably one of the top three teams in the country in 2020 and so like losing to them i don't think that and on top losing to them i don't think it's that big of a mark on the record and then on top of that the match was particularly close and one of the teams that they did beat in 2020 was Vassar and Vassar went to five with Springfield and beat New Paltz that year so Vassar was a very good program in 2020 and they're a very good program now and the reason why I'm really high on them as like the dark horse and the breakout program is obviously like because they didn't play this year the landscape kind of just forgot about them but MIT has always been incredibly solid they've always been an incredibly solid program but now that they've kind of left our consciousness they're coming back they have a very good they have a very good recruit class you I've highlighted one of their players coming in you've highlighted one of their players coming in I'm probably going to highlight another player that they have but at the end of the day they're also getting back uh, a, a middle that did not play for them has yet to play for them in the last two years because he was injured his fresh. I think he was injured his freshman and sophomore. I think he was injured his freshman season, which was COVID. And then, or he was injured his freshman season, which was 2020. And then COVID took away his 2021. So uh, his name, and now 2022, he's possibly looking at breaking into the starting lineup and solidifying their middle play. It was kind of like one of their biggest weaknesses in 2020. And honestly, with the guys they have coming in and the guys they have currently, and we actually saw a bunch of them play at Pottstown, and I actually thought they looked really good out there. I, I'm, I'm pretty high on MIT. I don't know if I would anoint them national championship contenders, as I know a lot of people outside of, like, you know, the coaching circles or outside of the uh, prognosticator circles like you and I are in, Harvey, would say, oh, yeah, we're really high on them. They, they can make Final Four. I don't know if I would say Final Four. I definitely think they'll be a dangerous team. I could definitely see them making the tournament, but if they did make the tournament, it's going to be a tough task for them because, obviously, the UVC is going to be really deep next year, and we'll get into more of that later. But I do think people should keep an eye on MIT in 2022, uh, hands down, 2022. Uh, definitely keep an eye on them. I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on that, but that's my take. I think the best way to share my thoughts on MIT is to uh, transition to our next question, Ramia. All right. Okay. We can do that. So, oh, actually, I see why. So, uh, which program will not meet expectations next year? All right, Harvey. Let's go. That's how we I hope I can engineer an answer here. <laughs> I love the puns. I love the puns. Get after it, Harvey. Yeah. I think MIT is going to struggle to meet the expectations right now. Um, and I'm going to take this from a three-prong approach. Um, number one, you just mentioned the hype they're receiving. Uh, these guys are are the Volley Talk national champions right now. They're going to be in the next four Final Fours. Um, Springfield's going to be a second-tier program in Massachusetts. There's a lot of initial hype for, for MIT, and a big part of it, um, this is a great class they're coming in. Like you mentioned, we've already profiled two of the guys as part of the Impact Freshman Series, which all you listeners should check out if you already haven't. Shameless plug right there. Um, <laughs> so I, I think that initial hype, some of it's warranted, but, you know, we're all looking for stuff to talk about in the world of Division Three Men's Volleyball in July, um, and, and that's that's been a big part of the attention. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's just getting a little overgrown there. The second one, that freshman transition, no matter how talented you are, no matter how good you are, it's really hard to do what Gene McNulty did this year, what Matt Renzel did a few years ago. You know, Tim Ferrier, Landon Shorts, those guys who are just absolute stud freshmen, it's really hard to come in and play at the collegiate level so fast with so much success, even if you're playing at the highest level of Juniors club Plus. stuff. Um, it's a different physicality. You go yeah. from playing against 18 year old kids the same age as you to grown ass men. I mean, if yeah. you're playing Southern Virginia, you are literally playing grown men. So <laughs> I think that's going to be a challenge for MIT. Mm -hmm. are, are, are those guys, you know, adjusting to the physicality 
and to that maturity that it takes to compete at the Division Three level night in and night out. And the third one is match speed rust. Um, by the time January 2022 rolls around, it'll have been 20 months plus since MIT has played a uh, competitive Division Three match. And as much as fall ball and intra-squad scrimmage works, there's a different intensity and a different match speed to it. So I think that MIT, by the end of the 2022 season, maybe can reach some of the heights people are talking about and be an NCAA tournament contender. But I really think they're going to struggle to meet that hype initially as they work out some kinks with the, with the transition for the freshmen and with, you know, getting back to that match level intensity and match speed that's so difficult to simulate in a practice gym. Well, I mean, they're all great thoughts, and I, I tend to agree with the overarching theme, right? Like, I think it's accurate to say that the team will be good and they'll be better than they were in 2020, but I think it's also accurate to say that there is a transition period between high-level junior club to D3 co- elite D3 college, right? Because that, like that's the level we're talking about here, especially when you're looking at the UVC in general, because the UVC is not a slouch conference. Like you can, there are elite teams in the UVC every year that do not go to the tournament. It happens all the time. And when we're talking about like the initial hype around MIT, I think like a good comparison is the 2013 New Paltz team, right? Because that was the Tim Ferreter, Christian Smith, Chris Hoosman, Nardone, original monster freshman class came into 2013, the New Paltz, and they were, they sprung the team into the top 10 contention, but they still lost big games that prevented them from going to the NCAA tournament, right? Like they lost to a Stevens Tech team in the semifinals of the UBC. And that Stevens Tech team had like Dave Evans, Etan Bennett. They had some grown men on their team at that point. That 2013 New Pulse team was still really good. And I think that's a good comparison to where 2020, 2022 MIT is going to be. My answer to this question has changed ever so slightly because in the grand scheme of things, uh, I think next year is going to be a little unpredictable. I think it's going to be a little unpredictable given the rise of certain programs this year and the strengthening of program and the, I'm trying to think the reloading of programs that had disappointing seasons this year. Right. So like in the grand context of things, you and I have both heard the rumors of who's transferring where and whatnot. We're not going to know what that's going to look like until the season begins. And we won't know like who's going to be like the biggest winners of said transfer sweepstakes and stuff but like originally my question was or my answer to this question was going to be Springfield strictly because of the high expectations that that program puts upon themselves and a lot of the reason I said that was just because a the high expectations and then b the landscape next year I intrinsically think is going to be a lot more competitive which puts a lot more pressure on Springfield to get to the finals, which has always been their goal. But as I was thinking about that, I was just like, well, like how has that ever really been a problem for Springfield in a non-COVID year, right? Just because a team is still loaded. They're still talent-wise on paper, one of the top three teams in the country. Arguably, some people would have them as the most talented team in the country, regardless of the outcome this year. And it literally took, and you've said this before, Harvey, like it literally took an act of God, a pandemic, and one bad match, and and one bad match to get Springfield from even going to the tournament, right? Like all of these things are just not going to happen next year. That we're not going to see that. So I think it's a little presumptuous of me to think that even with the landscape getting more loaded, when the landscape getting more competitive, that Springfield wouldn't be able to rise to that challenge, especially because they've shown us over the last ten years that they can, and there's nothing on their team that shows us that they won't. But what I do think, when I thought about it a little bit more, I actually think there's a lot of teams. I think all these super teams and all these like high level teams are going to be a little bit are going to fall a little short of expectations because we have a, we know a bunch of programs that have legit like in their minds they have legitimate title shots next year. And I don't. I hope this doesn't sound like a cop out because I don't really think it is right. Because as we all know, there's only going to really be one winner at the end of the year. But like when you look at the Mac this year, the Mac was intrinsically very competitive, and I actually think the Mac is going to be even more competitive next year. And honestly, like I mean, I'm not. I wouldn't say like Messiah is like the the hometown favorite of that program of that conference, but they're definitely favored. But they, I wouldn't be shocked if they lost it. And in the same regards, like we're talking like Rutgers, Newark is going to be good. 
Uh, MIT is going to be good. NYU is going to be reloaded. Vassar is going to be one of the top five programs. New Paltz, as my, like, I, even though I'm particularly high on the New Paltz team this year, they are intrinsically untested. And they're the, this group of guys that's going to be taking over the programs have literally been behind like the face of the face of the program for the last five years in that class with Matt Grace and Aaron Carp, right? So now it's their turn. And there's a lot of pressure that comes with that, with being the guys who run the program, from being the upperclassmen in the program who are literally expected to perform. There's a lot of pressure that comes with that. So honestly, like Springfield, New Paltz, Vassar, Rutgers, Newark, Juniata, like these are literally just six programs. And I'm going to give you six. I, like these are six programs that I personally know, that I personally know of, have very high expectations next year. And they're all in like, and they are all in conferences, which are particularly hard to play in, right? So we're talking like the UVC, the C, the UVC and the CVC. Those things, those conferences, they're intrinsically the power conferences. They've been historically power conferences, and not to get too far into what we're talking about later. So like, only one of them can win the tournament at the end of the year. And next year, I think next year's tournament is going to be one of the hardest years to win the tournament, right? So I think any team that has championship aspirations next year, it's tough. And the more I answer this question, the more it sounds like a cop-out, right? And honestly, like, people can hate on me for that, and I'll be okay with it. Like, that's whatever. My opinions are relevant. But honestly, like, I think those six teams have, like, the highest ceiling when it comes to uh, – performance and then like the high the highest probability of being disappointed with their finish at the end of the year and I, i'd stand by that too sorry that was a lot of context to get to an answer and i hope that answer made sense right uh, i wish that folks could have heard our first recording because yeah. our, our discourse over springfield we were yeah. going through was great and yeah. then <laughs> selfishly i think i changed your mind one uh, you're allowed to you're allowed you're allowed to give me a good argument to make me change my mind too like i'll i'll say that right now right because you did and obviously, since our first recording, I've thought about it a lot. But obviously, like my reservations about Springfield are still there, but they're also there for every other team that I just listed too. But keep going. Sorry, so, I didn't mean to. No, no, you're fine. Um, one team whose name you didn't mention, and I'm curious if you think they can meet their expectations, is Carthage, returning. You know, six of seven starters, I believe, or five of seven starters, five eight impact guys. Their goal is going to be to repeat for national title. If they fall short, does that mean they didn't meet their expectations? Well, I mean, to answer that question, if that's their expectation and they fall short, they didn't meet their expectation, right? And from every, <laughs> like, I mean, that's uh, that's a very simple answer, right? Like, if their expectation is to go and repeat and that's what their plan is and they don't do it, they fall short of their expectations. And from everything I know, they're looking at next year as a repeat year, uh, right? And honestly, they should. Like that's I would do that too if I had the same class coming back. Do I think they can? I think they can. I think they can repeat. I think it's going to be harder next year to repeat than any other year. I think if there was a year that would be very difficult to repeat, it would be next year, right? Because we're going back to the 16 team tournament. And I don't think we're going to have, and I just don't think that they're going to have, there's going to be more power teams in the conference next year than there were this past year and i'm not saying that the tournament didn't have power teams right that's not what i'm saying so if anyone that's gonna like get on me for saying that and be like oh no ramius said that the tournament was weaker no we had high level teams in the tournament this year but there's going to be a lot of them next year like you saw a similar thing play out with uh, the ncaa tournament uh the nc the women's ncaa tournament this year where they went from like 64 team uh 64 team tournament to like a 48 team tournament or something like that and like i'm trying to think like uh High Point, which is a Division One program that had never had a first-round victory in NCAA tournament history, had their first one in their NCAA tournament history. They finally got one this past year because they didn't play as hard of a, a harder competition. They didn't they didn't play the type of program they would normally play in the first round, right? Like they would normally play like a particularly high seed in the first round and they would be able to, and they would just be eliminated. Next, that's just going to be the natural cause of events when you add more teams to the tournament, right? So, and like in a 16 team tournament last year, like if there was like, maybe, I don't know, like Kane, like maybe Kane sneaks in, Kane could have been dangerous in the tournament with the guys they had, New Paltz possibly sneaking in, even NCC, if NCC snuck into a tournament, they would make some noise. I'll stand by that too. So like, I would be, so would I be shocked if Carthage didn't repeat next year? No, I don't think I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be shocked because I know it's going to be hard and winning one is hard enough. Winning two is 
almost impossible. And it, I think it says a lot to the fact that Springfield won three in a what, four in a row. I think it was four in a row they won, I think. In terms of like your original question, that was a lot of context. If that's their expectation and they don't repeat, then yes, they fell short of expectations. Do I think they can meet their expectations? Yes, I do. I do believe they can. I, I'd have them in like my top four. I think I'd have them in my four teams that I think have a legitimate shot of winning next year. And when I say legitimate shot, I'm talking like 30% chance of making the final four, which is a pretty good chance to make a final four in a 16 team tournament. Uh, but yeah, and that's going to be a whole bunch of other math and mumbo jumbo that's not worth getting into. This is not the outline, and I'm going to limit you to the answer here, Ramius, and it's a little bit for you for some future ideas we've shared. Give you Carthage and Springfield or the field to win the national title. Those two are the entire 110 teams competing against them. Okay. Uh, so either those two or the 110 teams? Okay. Uh, so that's the question. Yeah, I'm debating and I'm thinking about my answer. Honestly, like I would probably take the field. I actually think I would take the field if, in those two situations. And that's not a shot against like Springfield or Carthage. And it's not a shot at all. They're going to be two of the best teams next year, in my personal opinion, obviously. But like, there's just going to be a lot of good teams next year. And I think the tournament's going to be a bloodbath. I actually think the tournament next year is going to be insane. I, I, I can't say that any more clearly like uh like this last year right like if you were to say would you take x team in the uvc over everyone or over the field right we've had we've had that conversation before and if i was to pose that question i would probably say i would take the field of the uvc too just because of the historical competitiveness of that tournament not sorry i'm trying to limit my answer there so that's that would be my answer i would take the field i would definitely take that's the field. great because i would take carthage and springfield let's put the adult beverage on it all right, we'll put an adult beverage on it. I like that deal. All right, so Pond, that is the deal. So you've all heard it. I will leave that is being left in the podcast for you all to know if uh, Springfield or Carthage, if one of those wins the national title, Harvey will take Harvey gets an adult beverage on my on me. And if they don't, and if anyone other team does, it's on me. I'll take those odds. Thousand thousand percent I'll take them. Oh, you got me wild up here, Harvey. I like it. I like it. All right. So actually, since we were just talking about some of these conferences, our next question, right? How will the UVC pan out with the rest of the conference returning? All right, so Harvey, you, you lead us off and I'll come in and I'll try to keep my answer like reasonable because I get excited whenever we talk about the UVC. Yeah, so I kind of broke this into, into three tiers of the UVC. The top tier, I kind of think Vassar stands out on their own in 2022. Um, we talked a little bit about my thoughts on MIT, NYU, obviously transitioning back in. Fisher, uh, you know, has some new pieces working in. Um, I know they've got a nice class coming in, but I think they're still kind of that step below. Same with Naz, New Paul's graduated a lot of talent. I think they're going to take a step back. Um, Elmira, you know, shout out to Elmira. They made the UVC happen this year. Uh, Dan Miranda should have been UBC coach of the year for that alone. Um, so, so that's kind of that middle tier. And then at the bottom of the UBC, I have Bard. I, I don't think anyone's going to argue with that. So I think that, you know, I think anyone can kind of beat anyone on any good night. I wouldn't be shocked to see NYU, Nick Vassar, or MIT, Sweet New Pulse. I think all those results are kind of in play. But I'd be pretty surprised to see anyone but Vassar at the top of conference come to the end of the year. Want to do the same bet? Vassar? <laughs> not with the UVC, man. Not with the UVC. Because <laughs> uh, I would take that bet in a heartbeat, too. All right. Anyway, so uh, here we go. So, no, honestly, I think everything you just said, like, perfectly aligns. Uh, it's not that much of a hot take, really, because the UVC, like, the UVC is historically just been, historically and normatively, is one of the strongest cause is one of the strongest conferences. So like everything you just said, I would agree with on almost any given day. I mean, subjectively, like I would have my, like the one difference I have is like, I think like the top teams in the UVC, I think like the top tier of the UVC is a little bit wider than the bottom tier or the middle tier and the bottom tier. So I think it's particularly top heavy, but the problem is like the top heavy, even though it's top heavy, I'm using quotes for that. There's a lot of top teams. So like, 
like I know you're high, you're high on Vassar. I'm also very high on Vassar. I don't, I wouldn't have them as like the clear cut favorite. Like if I was to say they were like, if they were the, like, I mean, you have to assume they're the favorite based off who's coming back next year. And the fact that their whole, their whole team's coming back next year and they should be fine. Uh, they, especially cause like they're picking up uh, an outside two recruit who I think is going to actually help them very well. But like, uh, I am, I'm now, and I also know that I have to check my new Pulse bias here because I do, I, I'm actually very high on the guys that are coming into new Pulse and are not coming. Well, I am high on the guys coming into new Pulse, but I'm also high on the guys that are taking over the reins of the program. I think this is going to be a situation where we see guys who are finally getting their, their time to shine, really show what they have. Uh, and I honestly, like that might just the on-court formula changing. It might be what new Pulse needs. But to answer specifically, like I have in this top tier, I literally, I have MIT, Vassar, NYU, and New Paltz and as like the four top dogs in the UVC going next year. Honestly, like you could put St. John Fisher in that class as well. And honestly, even if they were below those programs, they're not below them by much. It's tough. And like, that's, and that's the thing with the UVC, right? Like the UVC is a shark tank every year. Like, it's very hard. It's very, even though, like, historically, you could say, like, oh, these teams are always ones winning the UVC. Well, okay, but it's not a given. Like, last year, uh, 2020, Vassar lost MIT. I said that earlier, and nobody would have seen that coming. This next year, like, I wouldn't be surprised if MIT won. I wouldn't be surprised if NYU won. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if St. John Fisher won. It was very, it's very possible. It's very possible for any of those teams to win the UVC. So it's very difficult. So with all those teams returning, Honestly, like the UVC, in my like to answer the actual question, the UVC just returns to what it was before a shark tank of a conference with some of the most elite programs battling it out in a regular season schedule. Which honestly, like, that's just going to be awesome for volleyball fans because it's just a lot of great games you're going to get to watch and a lot of narratives going out throughout the year. Sorry, that was a lot, Harvey. <laughs> Sorry, that was a lot. Sorry, you, uh, you must have uh, you must have great balance. Because there's no one sitting on a fence like you during this podcast so far. I mean, I, it's tough, Harvey. Like, it's so tough. You know why? Because, like, the more I think about next year, the more I'm just sitting here being like, well, there's a lot of parody. And, like, there's a lot of equally good teams. And it's not like it's bad parody. It's like elite level parody. And it's just so tough right now to make a prognostication without seeing what the on-court stuff is. Like, I mean, if you were to hold my feet to the fire and ask me who I think the top three UVC teams are going to be next year, like I'd probably go Vassar, New Paltz, MIT. Like I would sell, I would, I would lock that in right now as opposed to next year. And obviously like a hold, like some room for change, because honestly, like, like I said earlier, St. John Fisher could easily be any of those teams. In fact, they all, they did this year, right? They almost beat Vassar in five and then they, what is it, five? They almost beat Vassar in five. I want to say it was almost in five. Yeah. And then they almost, they beat New Paltz in five twice. Right. And that's relevant. I, I, you can say X people weren't on the court. It doesn't matter. It's still relevant. So like, it's just tough, especially when we're talking about the UVC. So I apologize for it not sounding like I have a leg to stand on. And it sounds like I'm trying to be very balanced. It's just really hard. Like, I don't know what's going to happen in the UVC next year outside of the fact that it's just going to be really deep and really hard to win games in the UVC, which is awesome. Like this is better for the fan base. Uh, do you have any more thoughts on that before we move on? No, I think you should move into question five because I know it's a shorter one for you and it's a longer one for me as far as the answers go. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm good with that, Harvey. So uh, the next question we got for you all is if you could start a D3 team in any region of the country, where would you? Name, uh, mine is just based off location. I would start one in California. Uh, hands down, not there's no program that I have in mind. I just want more California schools. So we can actually have a pretty active D3 West Coast scene, uh, mostly for parity, mostly for ge for geographic balance, and two because California is awesome, and I would be so tan all the time. And I am anyone who's ever met me knows I'm the palest man in the entire world. So yeah, that would be me. I'd be starting in California, hands down. What about you, Harvey? Get after it. Big Santa Cruz and uh, and Cali are giving you a big round of applause right now. So uh, I took this question a little more depth, and I picked uh, each of the ABCA regions and talked about which program I would want to start there and one wild card as well. I like it. I like so, it. First one in the Northeast, um, Babson, would be a great place to start a program. Um, strong business school, 
in the Massachusetts area, big champion of athletics, men's basketball team won a national title a few years ago. Women's volleyball program under Eric McNeely has had a ton of success. They've got a national recruiting base. Men's lacrosse up there made a uh, NCAA tournament for the first time in over 40 years. Um, so I, I think they'd be really strong, a really nice foil to Endicott, and really be able to build a nice brand the same way that, you know, Riviera, Endicott, Springfield have done up in the Northeast with a little bit more of an academic reputation than a few of those. Um, in the North, uh, Stevens, Wentworth, MIT, cover your ears, but I think RIT is a great fit. Um, any coach worth his while knows that half the student athletes you talk to want to be engineers. So another engineering school in the mix definitely make the landscape more competitive. Rochester, obviously a hotbed for volleyball. Pace Bootlegger, Hot Shots, both running great clubs up there. Niagara Frontier had an awesome year. They're only an hour or so from Rochester. RIT's women's program has had a ton of success in the Liberty League along with Ithaca, so I think they'd be a great natural fit. A lot of geographic competition, and they would slide right into the UVC. I forgot to mention that Babson uh, would be a great fit in the NECC or the GNAC uh, conference-wise. Mm -hmm. um, for the East region, Christopher Newport, beautiful Newport News, Virginia, right on the beach. You've got Coastal, you've got RBC, a lot of talent in the Virginia area. Um, since we've recorded this podcast, Roanoke College has announced they're adding men's volleyball. Christopher Newport would be the fifth Virginia program, joining Marymount, EMU, Southern Virginia, Randolph-Macon, uh, six, I guess, now joining Roanoke as well, um, but would be an awesome fit. Their women's program has been very successful. Another school that really champions athletics, great arena, great facility, would be in the top five of Division Three. really quick on that note. Um, Midwest, University of Chicago, elite institution. I can see them battling with NYU right away for kids. Um, just, you know, really providing that great education, great athletic background. Their women's team, super successful. Uh, I'm sure Benedictine, North Central, and Dominican, this is one of the last things they want to see. But University of Chicago is a little bit different air academically there. And, you know, I could easily see them getting some West Coast kids traveling into the Midwest for that educational experience. Mm. No, just to like cut in and obviously continue your answer too, but like they have like such a, they have, they have a huge pool, of, they have a huge built in recruiting, uh, recruiting scene just in that area of the Midwest, right? Because like Chicago's got a bunch of good volleyball clubs, uh, Milwaukee's got a bunch of good volleyball clubs. And so it's just like they, they can get some elite kids just from that region and the West Coast. So like they're going to get the best of both worlds, but keep going, keep going. For sure. Um, and they'd be a great fit in either the NCDL or the NACC, both awesome options for them. And then my wild card is yeah. the University of Mary Harden Baylor out of Texas. Yeah. Uh, big time football program. I want to say they won a national championship a few years ago for football. They played in a couple others. Texas is obviously booming with boys volleyball. Um, so it'd be a great opportunity for those kids to see that they have a chance to keep competing and playing collegiately close to home. Uh, just like Santa Cruz and Kalu, it would be a challenge for them to be able to put together a schedule as an independent. But, you know, we've seen the uh, the double weekend trips work. You go on a bus for, for a week, get your eight matches in, do it one more time. You've got 16, get one trip to you. Um, I think it would be awesome. So all five of those schools, I think if they were to add, you could see them being very competitive within a few years, same kind of way of, of St. John Fisher. And uh, hopefully we're going to have this as another one of our social breakout clips. And uh, we'll get those schools tagged with their athletic departments, their administration. Looking at men's volleyball, easy ad, great financially, and uh, really will enhance your, your athletic uh, community on campus. All right. So let's go to question seven here. So uh, how come, or question six, how competitive will the at-large bids be? Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll answer this because it's kind of just been like, oh, I'll go first here because – I've honestly just been saying it over and over again. They're going to be tough. Like every year at large bids are competitive and you don't really know what they're going to look like until you start to get on court results. So it's a little hard to truly answer this question because some years it's a lot more tough than others. Uh, and some years it's not even, a, it's not even a choice, right? Like some years the math just works out that one team clearly is just going to win based off the numbers. And then some years like you're really determining between like, 
different criteria and then like x team has two criteria and x other, and this other x team has two criteria and then you're making like a call based off all of that right but honestly like until we know what the encore results are we really can't say how competitive they will be what i will say is that the landscape in general is going to be a lot more competitive next year that i I'm, i've been saying that this entire this entire episode of the podcast and if there's one theme anyone should take away from that is that next year is going to be a bloodbath like it will be a bloodbath all the good teams are going to be like elite like elite level good uh i wouldn't be surprised for like a top one through seven to all have legitimate shots of winning a championship like it's just like that's what we're going to be looking at next year so that's that's my take on this question and I think you're dead on with a lot of that. Um, I, I know you've talked about it a ton, but just to give our listeners some context, it's either 20 or 22 of the 28 All-Americans are returning next year, which is the highest rate in the history of the ABCA All-American Awards. So just an idea of the individual talent coming back along with, you know, the teams we've talked about previous so far. And then they're all going to be like 23. Like we're having like, we're literally having like, 23 24 and 25 year olds playing against like 18 19 year olds like that matters like those are grown men bodies playing against boys right like i mean i remember being 19 i remember playing against 21 year olds and there's still like a difference but and there's a difference there and i'm not saying i'm not arguing against it right like because that's like even so that's still kind of common in like d3 because you have x amount of years of eligibility in d3 but you think a 24 year old would be the youngest player on southern virginia's roster that's pretty crazy Hey man, Southern Virginia. I love Southern Virginia. I love watching them play, but no, yeah, but that's the point, right? Like the experience matters, the games matter and the strength matters. So like the level of competition has only gotten harder next year. Everyone should be aware of that. Yeah. So I, I took this question in a little bit of a different direction. I just kind of wanted to highlight who some of the top contenders for those at larges would be. Um, first one, the CCIW winner and potential runner up. Um, pool B looks like it's going to be down to one bid, which means of Springfield, Carthage, NCC, only one of those teams is going in Pool B. So I would say the other two are, are really competitive to be in the Pool C uh, allocation and from the CCIW, that is uh, that is Carthage and North Central. Um, the CBC runner-up, whether it is Juniata, Southern Virginia, Rutgers, Newark, I think they're kind of your three main contenders. Whoever doesn't win that conference, if they have a great non-conference slate, um, I think they'll be a contender to get in. Yeah, I agree. Um, the MAC, I think that the MAC runner-up is definitely going to be a contender. Um, I think your your top two dogs in this conference uh, for the 2022 season are Messiah and Stevens. I think they're kind of in the top tier by themselves. Arcadia's returning a lot of talent, too. Um, obviously, disappointing for them this past year, losing that 4-5. Um but, you know, with, with Messiah's returning talent, with their incoming class that yeah. Coach Geeky highlighted so well, Ryan mm-hmm. Gibbons, 18 open all tournament team this past yes. week at Boys Junior Nationals. Yes. Um, yeah, so yes. I think the loser of, of Stevens Messiah, that runner-up, would be competitive. Um, mm-hmm. The NACC, only conference to get two teams in last year, Benedictine and Dominican. I think mm-hmm. both those teams will be in contention again, so obviously the runner-up there. Will, will be in the mix. Springfield, I already mentioned, uh, if they don't receive the pool B because Carthage went 45 now again, um, they'll be right there. And then the UBC, um, just how, how much of a gauntlet it is each year, the amount of quality matches you get within conference really boosts your resume. So I think both the UBC runner up and the UBC third place, whoever they are, Will be will be in that running. You seem to favor New Paltz and MIT. I'd be a little more NYU and St. John Fisher. But yeah. it just shows how deep the conference is and how all five teams for that could be in the discussion throughout the year when it comes to regional rankings. Yeah, and honestly, like even just that, like I mean, just saying St. John Fisher and NYU, like that's not a shocking result to me, and that just speaks to the UVC, right? Like I wouldn't be shocked. I wouldn't be shocked. All three and. Literally, like, it's kind of shocking that two-thirds of the teams that I would favor could not be in, and then two-thirds of the teams that fit teams that you favor could not be in or could be in. It's nuts. Like, that's just the nature of the UBC next year. And the CVC is getting to – is kind of at that point too, right? Like, we could be looking at only one team from the UBC going and based off of the CVC, like, 
Juniata, Rutgers, or uh, or Cam- or what is it? Uh, Kane, Southern Virginia. Or Southern Virginia, yeah, Kane, Southern Virginia. But like Southern Virginia, Rutgers, and uh, Juniata, like all three of those teams could get in too. And then the UVC could only be sending one. The NACC could only be sending one. Like all these, like the power conferences are just really deep next year. It's going to happen. Like that's just kind of the nature of it next year. And then, all right. So kind of talking about conferences here. Let's kind of, I'm going to skip ahead here because it kind of flows, but like, let's, since we're talking about conferences, uh, one of our listeners actually asked for us to rank the strength of the conferences as a whole. And so I'm trying to think, I actually like that question a lot. Uh, I can take the lead, Harvey, unless you want to go first. I don't really care because I think our, some our answers are going to be kind of similar, I, I suspect, but outside of that. I can go I my thoughts. So you go ahead and you take the lead on this one. All right. No problem. No problem. So essentially, so essentially the power conferences in my view, I don't really like to rank the strength of the conferences as a whole. I like, I don't want to do like a one through 10 play like, Oh, this is the best conference. This is the absolute worst conference. I'm really not about that. I'm not really trying to highlight like that type of narrative. What I do, what I will talk about is who I think are like, Historically, narratively, and normatively, what are the power conferences of Division Three men's volleyball? Because I think that's uh, much more well, accurate. I think that's a much more accurate dep- depiction of the landscape. And so I would say the UVC, the CVC, and the NACC, and honestly, right now, I would also include the MAC. I think those four conferences can honestly be deter can honestly be called the power conferences of d3vb right now based off the teams that they have in them the depth of the programs that they have and the quality of play that is being that is being done within them right and because all these all these conferences have the ability to send more than one team to determine based off of all those factors so i think that's largely the upper echelon of conferences in division three men's volleyball and if I uh, don't. I don't think many people would disagree with me on that. And honestly, like that's really all I had on this. Ramius, you're being too nice, man. You're being too nice. <laughs> Maybe that's what anonymity gives me. Um, so I tiered my conferences out uh, into four tiers. Right, so, tier one, I have NACC, UVC, and CVC. Those conferences have a great mix of, of top-heavy teams who are strong, as well as depth throughout the conference. You know, NACC, um, what was it? MSOE was the three seed, and they got knocked off during their conference tournament by the six. That's pretty rare right there, plus yeah. two teams in the NCAA tournament. Great, it's a great game to watch. Well, it was a great, great match to watch. I will say that. Keep going, keep going. UVC, I'm not sure we need to fully show it anymore. Um, obviously, it, it's a strong conference. I've, I've, done it, I've done it enough this podcast. We can move on. <laughs> um, in, during the CDC this year, you know, we had four teams, I believe, at one point, ranked in the top 12 of the country. Um, Kane, I think, is headed for a pretty pretty big fall off into 22 uh, with the Cat Milnazic crew graduating, Jared Ray's back, but it's tough as a one-man show. So even there, I gave them the benefit of Tier 1 with three top 10 teams or so especially with how I feel about Rutgers heading into the next season. Tier 2 is the uh, is the smallest tier. Um, I've got the CCIW and the MAC. The CCIW is in Tier 2 because of the top flight talent. Carthage and NCC, both top 10, 12 programs, more than likely, but not a lot of depth through the rest of the conference. MAC is the exact opposite. I think that Messiah, I- I've been high on Messiah from the dawn of time, for anyone who's read my early pieces, yeah. I think they're going to be a top five in 2022. I think Stevens going to make a bounce back. And then I think two through six in that conference, or three through six, is really competitive behind them, even if they only have one national contender. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Tier three, I've got the GNAC, the NECC, and the MCVL. Um, those are because they have a top-tier team that's competitive on the national landscape. You've got Wentworth in the GNAC with Riv coming back. You've got the NECC, Endicott kind of been king there. Um, Elms is looking like they're ready for a fall-off. 
And, uh, and the NCDL, where you've got FOPON, a program on the rise, as well as Mount Union, a team that, you know, we mentioned earlier on high on. So that puts them in Tier 3. There's not really a national contender to foil the top team in that conference the way the other two tiers have. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, <laughs> sorry to say it, but Tier 4, I've got the Skyline, the AMCT, and the Kuniak. I mean, the Port of Kuniak, it took, they, they just had to take a year off from volleyball. It's, it's going to be tough. Um, Nick Sanchez resigned at Hunter. So, you know, one of the, yeah, one of the top two programs in the conference is going to be looking for a new head coach in that transition. And then, you know, the Skyline, the AMCC, I think it's very hard for us to envision a situation in which a team from that conference is winning an NCAA tournament game in 2022. Same for the Kuniaks. So that, that's why they're tier four. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's the harsh reality. Those athletes work hard. They do a great job, but they're just not as present on the national landscape like yeah. we see from the other conferences. And I'm just pointing out, we have nothing but respect for all D3VB athletes, everyone, but, the, but we do speak in hard truths, and that's very simple. All right. And honestly, great answer, Harvey. I do appreciate that. Your candor is always appreciated, especially when I apparently seem to be on the fence all day today. I don't know what it is. I normally like I, I've been so indecisive going into next year. And obviously, we're, this is like some off the cuff stuff, but I've been so indecisive when it comes to next year. And it's mostly just because like I actually honestly have no idea what's going to happen. I have no clue. And I generally have a pretty good pulse on these things. Like I just I don't. And I'll, I, like, I'm kind of like a numbers amateur, like I'm an, I'm, an, I'm almost a numbers guy. I'm like a stats amateur, but like at the end of the day, like until I get like actual results, I, I'm so afraid to actually have an opinion, but I mean, so I have to apologize to all my podcast people. I'm sorry. I'm so indecisive. <laughs> For our numbers and math fans that are listeners, uh, we got something coming your way soon, courtesy of Bradley. So keep your eyes peeled and uh, our, our math nerds will be excited of, uh, of what's coming to the pod. Yeah, I'm so excited for that myself. All right, where did I leave us off? All right, so which conference should be next to sponsor Division Three men's volleyball? So I don't know which conference should be the next, but I do know which conference is getting close. I would not be surprised if the Empire Eight start actually sponsored uh, Division Three men's volleyball very soon, maybe within the next, like, two or three years i could see the empire eight doing it which is going to be kind of like that's going to be send that's going to be uh sending some shockwaves obviously because like a lot of the empire eight schools play in the uvc and if their conference sponsors it they don't need to be in the uvc anymore but i only say that because i know that another empire eight school is going to be adding division three men's volleyball very very soon they haven't made an official announcement yet i've also been asked not to name them but you know that's going to happen eventually uh so i could see it happening very quickly and if that's the case like that's going to be they're going to have like five of x programs in that conference but you know it's going to happen so yeah the the one that it's it's more of a probably more of a dream situation than who who will be next um, but I would love to see the NASCAC start men's volleyball. Um, Division III's true foil to the Ivy Leagues. They're an academically elite um, group of schools. They support athletics to the absolute premium. If you ever look at the Learfield Directors' Cup standings, they have seven of the top ten schools annually. Um, up in the Northeast, you've got schools like Tufts, Williams, Amherst. They would easily attract a national pool of recruits all the way to the West Coast. You'd see them challenging Harvard and Princeton for kids right off the bat. Um, really, we would be able to build some winners fast and enhance the uh, enhance the level of ball in Division Three. So uh, the NESCAC would be my pick for the next conference. I like this question a lot just because I was, a, well, I was a former player. Harvey, you were a former player. I mean, we were all former players at the pond. Former chump, radius. I was a former chump. Well, I was a former chump. Let's just be real here. They don't even have my stats because they don't exist. But uh, best home courts or slash worst gyms to play in in D3VB. So I love this question just because we all have, I love this question. I don't know why. And I'm obviously not like making fun of any of these facilities. I'll make fun of the facilities. Harvey, <laughs> <laughs> you're so bad. All right. So uh, in terms of like, the atmosphere, uh, the best and worst, right? So it's the best for the home team and like worst 
for you going to visit, I have to say like, there is no experience like being a top level team in D3 VB and going and playing at Springfield because that is a national championship level environment. If you are a one through five team and that school campus knows that you are really good and this is a big game for Springfield, they're going to pack that gym. It's going to be incredibly hostile. You're going to feel like you're playing the most important game of your entire life. And it's literally a non-conference regular season match, right? Like they, that is how serious of an environment that that gym is. And then on top of that, the ceiling is really low. So not only are you dealing with that, but you also have to deal with the literal structure of the building and then the eighth man or yeah, the eighth man, which is the crowd. Right. And so like, and that's, I, I think a lot of people who play who have played at Springfield would agree with me in this. And like, as an, as a fan, I love it because I love watching teams go there and literally have to fight both Springfield and the fan base. Because like, I mean, we saw that in the, uh, uh, Harvey, you would know this off the top of your head. What was the tournament that they hosted? The NCAA tournament they hosted was that twenty. Hosted in both twelve and seventeen. Right, and so like we saw what happened when teams went there and had to play for a national tournament, a national championship on their home court, and that gym was packed constantly. And like I wouldn't be shocked if there would be earthquakes in Springfield in Springfield during those matches. Right, so like for anyone who hasn't experienced it, I hope you get to. But to answer that question, best and worst is going to be Springfield for everything that I just laid out. There's literally no other experience like playing at Springfield in a in a big, big game. There's nothing like it. Before you keep going through that. I mean, I'm done, so it's all you. Yeah. We brought up the 2017 tournament, and one of the most legendary things, we've got to shout him out, um, Dominican men's volleyball traveled 27 kids to the tournament. And I believe that's 10 on their own dime because yeah. those were the young men that started the program and yeah. made sure they had a championship experience at Springfield. I believe Dan Ames, now at Aurora, was still at Dominican at the time. Yeah. And, and as someone who is in this and understands the financial aspect of Division Three athletics, what a classy and awesome move by, by Dan, the Dominican athletics department, everyone was involved to make sure all those kids some of whom didn't have a chance to step in the court, couldn't even dress in a uniform to have that championship experience. Um, it's honestly the biggest takeaway I had from that tournament, along with the 2017 Wentworth team, was seeing that entire Dominican squad there because it was such an important thing for us to now have that experience. And I just wanted to throw it out there since we are on Tangent Street anyway. No, that's fine. And honestly, that's a great story. Thank you for sharing that with me. That's awesome. I, oh, God. That's such, that's such a move. That's such a move. Oh my God. Anyway, you're you're up, Harvey. You're up. So along with Springfield for best atmosphere, I got to go with Juniata. Um, Friday night, 7 p.m., 650 students. For anyone who's played at Juniata, you know Ghost Sports Kid is standing there <laughs> with his poster. Um, just a legendary place to play volleyball, even if the dimensions and the facility isn't the greatest. The atmosphere um, is electric, along with Springfield. Uh, without giving too much away about my identity, I can't echo everything you said about Springfield anymore. Um, yeah. Yeah. In terms of best physical facility, uh, I lean towards Carthage. Tarble is awesome. Absolutely, yeah. they, they put on an excellent production. They really make you feel the weight and gravity of playing in that gym, mm -hmm. which is an awesome thing to say. Um, and the two other contenders I have, both probably, one definitely underrated, one's going to be way off the radar. Um, Stevenson University uh, in Maryland, just awesome place to play. You've got the two video boards, jet black ceiling, um, just awesome facility. And this one, people won't know about for a few years, but uh, from some conversations I had with teams at the national championship this year, and a little bit of personal research on Google, Roanoke College. Yo, I know where you're going with this. Go ahead, take it home. Absolutely gorgeous arena, surround seating, 2,500. And if you're listening, make sure you take the time to look this up. They've got a massive window on the west end of the gymnasium that looks out onto the Shenandoah mountain range that they have curtains that are retractable for. So for night games, you've got the view, you've got the video board. Um, 
I talked to some of the teams that practiced there, and man, just what an awesome facility, and it's going to be an absolute treat uh, when they host a future national championship. Underrated as well, Elmira, man, just a cool place to play. Uh, I'm going to leave it there. Worst facilities, Kane, too big, huge ceiling, it's white, lights are bright. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not a huge fan. And then uh, the other two, Nazareth and Southern Virginia. <laughs> you hear stories in Southern Virginia that guys can't toss their jumpsters normally. The baskets yes. don't move. It's just uh, Southern Virginia is really bad, too. It's really bad. <laughs> the conference doesn't let you host the tournament in your gym because of competitive disparity, I think it's safe to say your facility isn't worthwhile. That's so true. And obviously, I have nothing but respect for SVU, but I mean, I, I, I really do. But didn't they play the, uh, didn't they just play the uh, CBC championship in a high school down there? The last two CBC tournaments have been played at a high school in the Buena Vista area because uh, Southern Virginia's gym isn't fit to host. But after the national championship this year, maybe they should be called Salem. I mean, I don't even get me started, but don't even get me started, uh, buddy, because I'll tell you what, any time any team should, would have the opportunity to go play in Salem, they should, because that, that venue, oh, God, oh, please, please, please go play in Salem so I can watch you all play in Salem. Oh, that, that should be holy ground for NCAA D3 at this point, based off how great that experience and facility was. That, that, oh, please, we should do it there every year. Sorry, I'm on tangents now. This is tangent street, all right. We, we have taken the full turn, full turn down it. You got one left, baby. We're close to the finish. Oh, I'm so sad. Oh, it's been a fun one, too. Oh, let's I see. Do have the question. Oh, I mean, yeah, we got to answer both of these. All right. So uh, if you could make one rule change, what would it be? So mine was fairly easy, uh, and I didn't have to think too long about this. Uh, I would make, you know, so essentially we play the fifth set to 15, I would scrap that and I would make that fifth set to 25. In my opinion, we were D3 VB. Nobody really cares. We played the first four to 25. Let's play that fifth one to 25 too. We'll pay the refs extra. I don't care. I don't care. We'll fundraise. We'll figure it out. But make that last fifth set to 25. Let's make it a real set. Not about this, this short set crap. I want to see you everyone going to war and fifth set, fifth set energy to 25. I want to see it. That's what I would do. What about you, Harvey? I'm heading the exact opposite direction. <laughs> I think the fifth set should be played to the first team to lead by two points. Mm. <laughs> you can win 2 nothing, 4-2, 19-17, doesn't matter. The amount of intensity and the amount of strategy that would come in to that situation would be off the charts. Who do you send back first? What rotation do you in? You invent an entirely new rotation so that you can just get a one-point advantage on the other team and then serve as hard as you can. I just think that it would be such an electric finish to a game and the, the, uh, the absolute urgency from both teams, it, it would make it the best event in sports. It's like penalty kicks on cocaine. Oh, I don't oh, I don't know, man. I'd be so scared trying to do that, but I love the energy. I love the You know what? You could probably sell me if you made that side out scoring. I could probably be sold on that front, but honestly, like it's your rule. And honestly, like, you know what? I, I, I'm, I'm freaking out just thinking about it, right? That's kind of like how intense that is. I'm sitting there and be like, woof. Like, you could just either have a non-game or you could just have like one of the most insane couple moments of your entire life. Ah, God, that's so much. You're making me freak out, and I'm not even playing. So I'm just imagine, uh, I'm thinking of it this year. Imagine the, the fifth set of the national title, and you've got the opportunity, if you're um, with your Benedictine, to start in rotation two or rotation six, however you want to call it, with Legros in the front row. He just torches a ball on second contact off the service team, and then he goes back to serve for national championship point. I mean, yeah, if you imagine... Yeah, like I know he was struggling with some arm pain, but I think he would have sucked it up just to rip that ball as much as possible. If I think he would have watched his arm fly out of his socket like an action figure on that service and then winning a national title. Hands down, hands down. Oh man, that, oh god. Lionheart, what a guy. Oh, 
the line. <laughs> We're big fans of the pond. We definitely are. All right. And then the cap off this oh so special podcast. We have my favorite question of the entire one. Who had the best mustache of the NCAA tournament? Now, Harvey, you lead us off because your answer is rather funny. I've got the best mustache with a comparison and then another mustache with comparison. Oh, God. Here we go. Best mustache with comparison. Nate Bowman from the file looked like Tom Selleck. It <laughs> was like a Magnum PI extra out there. It was, it was great. The Sia, a lot of great mustaches, but Bowman's really stood out. Mm-hmm. Our other one, um, Gene McNulty, looked exactly like Fred Savage. Oh, no. Oh, I'm so sorry, Gene. <laughs> Those of you who don't know who Fred Savage is, uh, you'll probably recognize him from Austin Powers, gold member, most likely for this generation. But also uh, also in Growing Pains, Fred Savage, and a uh, brother of Ben Savage, who played Corey Matthews in Boy Meets World. So that was kind of Gene's comp. And Lanius, I know you agree with me on Nate Bowen, but there's one more guy who deserves a great mustache shout out. Yeah, so uh, my choice was, so for everyone, so just for a little bit of context, uh, hands down, I was going to choose Nate Bowman for having the best mustache in the NCAA tournament until somebody submitted a dark horse contender to this. And it made me think real hard, real hard about switching my choice after a long um, like after a bunch of moments of thinking about it, I still had to go with Nate Bowman for having one of the best mustaches in the NCAA or having the best mustache. So that hasn't changed. But Martin Radomski, you gave in my rankings, you gave him one of the best runs for your money of anybody else because that mustache, whoop, the, the energy that came off that thing, you literally made me question everything, especially like, you know, the fact that it got highlighted on the night that you had like six solo blocks against SVU or some or some nonsense, literally playing to the power of the mustache. I had to respect it. I have to respect it. Uh, but back to back to it though, Nate Bowman, you had the best mustache. Trophies in the mail. Martin Radomski, still nothing but respect. I still owe you a hundred frog jumps. That's coming in the mail too. This has been a fantastic podcast, everyone. Uh, we'll be back soon and get after it while you can.